0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever changing healthcare industry.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome again to the HFAM podcast, Quality Care Talks. Today, I'm super blessed to be in the offices of Jill Schumann of Leading Age Maryland. Jill, welcome.
2: Nice to be here with you today.
1: Thank you so much for making the time, my friend. Glad to do it. We've got a lot to talking about. So tell me about Leading Age Maryland.
2: Leading Age Maryland is an association of not-for-profit organizations in Maryland that serve older adults. We have lots of different kinds of organizations as members. We have community health and hospice, adult day services, nursing homes, and our two largest member segments are affordable housing for older adults and continuing care retirement communities or life plan communities. And generally, we are a subsidiary, a state affiliate of the national nonprofit aging services organization, Leading Age. And uh, we also, of course, as uh, I'm sure HVAM does, engage with sponsors and business members and really appreciate their expertise as part of our community as well.
1: That's outstanding. You know, I think your niche there and you serve it so well is two things that are unique about Leading Age Maryland and Leading Age in general. You represent exclusively not-for-profit entities, and you have such a broad spectrum of the membership, you know, including senior housing.
2: Right. It's a big tent. It is a That's big right. tent, right? And we find, interestingly, that when folks are together, um, they really start to appreciate not only the way that they're different and touching different parts of the older adult population, but also the things that they have in common and the things that they can learn from and each other. And maybe, them, which
1: maybe fun. what they haven't possibly you know, thought about. So what problems does Leading Age Maryland seek to solve? You know, with that broad membership, who do you serve?
2: Well, actually, our mission statement is that we, our job is to expand the world of possibilities for aging in Maryland through advocacy, education, innovation, and collaboration. So we actually see ourselves as having a tiered mission. Certainly, it's important that each of our member organizations is strong, has high quality services, benefits in some way from being together in leading age Maryland. But we also focus on innovation and collaboration to make Maryland a better place to grow old. So, for our members, we may do things like a variety of kinds of training, we do public policy advocacy, we do leadership development, and we do lots of connecting with people through professional disciplines, lots of peer networks, so that people can learn together. But we also convene folks to work on bigger issues that affect older adults in Maryland. So, for example. I think there's a widespread recognition probably with your members as well that people misunderstand what palliative care is absolutely, and that they come often very late to hospice, probably would benefit from being involved with hospice sooner. And so we've got a task group of members that are really working on finding ways to change that, to try, because they walk with so many older adults at the end of life, this is an interesting opportunity to really think about how we could make a dent in the use of palliative care and hospice. And for example, we're involved, as I know you are, with the Maryland Regional Direct Services Collaborative Mm -hmm. because we think that it's really important to have valued, well-trained caregivers at a variety of levels in a variety of settings, including in people's homes. And so those are just a few of the kinds of things that we do in addition to trying to make sure our members are strong, bringing our members together to try to actually make Maryland a better place to grow. Well,
1: you know, Jill, I admire you so much for the connector that you are and the facilitator of best selves that you are. You know, you, you help people to become their best selves and you're, you're a resource, not just here in Maryland, but in your larger leading age national organization. One thing that I'm excited about in terms of what you're focusing your energy on is trauma-informed care. What can you tell the listeners of the HFAM podcast today about the work you're doing on trauma-informed care?
2: Sure. We know that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as part of the requirements of participation phase three for nursing homes, has mandated that by November of this year, all nursing homes will have implemented trauma-informed care. Interestingly, it's slow coming to aging services. It's been standard of care, state-of-the-art in children's services, in behavioral health. Uh, many cities are have adopted trauma-informed approaches. And really, basically, trauma-informed care recognizes that many, many people, more than we may have realized, have lasting effects from adverse experiences. Those effects can be emotional, psychological, but they also, we know, there are long-term health outcome effects And the prevalence is much greater than we might have guessed. People who have survived things like domestic violence, childhood abuse, natural disaster, war and fleeing war or fleeing poverty in other countries, violence in other countries, growing up in households where a parent has been erratic or absent because of substance abuse. There are lots of ways that people experience adverse effects. And those adverse effects experience each of us differently. So there's a recognition that the effects of trauma vary from person to person. What's long-lasting for one person may not be for another, and it's not something that people can choose. It's what happens to them. And so the question then becomes, how do we create environments that respect the fact that there are lots of people who have been through very traumatic things with lasting impact. How do we create environments where both staff and residents can have respectful, safe, transparent interactions with one another that limit the potential for re-traumatizing or triggering people. And what we've discovered, it's been interesting to talk to colleagues in children's services particular, that these are actually great environments to work in. They're the kinds of places people, if people had to say, where would I like to work? What kind of a culture would I like to work in? This is the kind of culture people want to work in. It's very collaborative, it's mutual, it's safe, it's respectful, and it understands that there are that violence isn't just physical. For example, the silent treatment is actually a violent act. Mm -hmm. That's actually an aggression. You know, it's aimed at somebody and its desire is to make them feel bad, Mm -hmm. right, or get even or whatever. So we're producing resources for nursing homes, but certainly they can be used much more broadly to help folks, first of all, understand what trauma-informed care is. And CMS, as I suspect uh, no one in your listening audience will be surprised, has not yet actually promulgated guidance on what they're expecting with trauma-informed care. But what they have said is that they're going to use the SAMHSA guidelines, Mm -hmm. the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration guidelines for trauma-informed care. So that's what we've based our work on. And we've been gathering experts from across the country. It's interesting that there is not a lot of evidence-based work In trauma-informed care with older adults. Most of that comes out of work with children or behavioral health trauma-specific treatment. So we are going to try to incorporate more research, but we also right now gonna have to adapt some things. So we're we've got a foundations toolkit, and we're just finishing up a guidebook for implementation that we think will be really useful to people as they try to meet this mandate, but maybe even more importantly create organizations that can do well with the range of people who have trauma because we know it's widespread and we know that that means lots of staff members have been affected by trauma as well.
1: What I love about the conversation that we're having about this subject is that those that will listen and are listening now to this discussion in this podcast will absolutely be able to hear about your passion. <laughs> and No, really, your passion and your understanding of this subject And how it's imperative that we build that tool chest going forward for our teams and for our communities and the people that they serve.
2: And some of your organizations, I suspect, may be further down this road than others. We know, for example, that many of the organizations that have served Holocaust survivors Mm. have been quite adept at dealing with that specific kind of trauma and have made. Good, I think, very good inroads in identifying what some potential triggers might be and making sure to keep folks in safe environments. Similarly, there's been a fair amount of work done with folks that have trauma as a result of having been in combat. Right. So there are certainly for veterans, there has been some work in this area. But I think it's exciting to me that we're recognizing those are the only two populations that have been affected.
1: Right. Right. So tell me, how did you end up a leader in healthcare? What was the path that led us to today?
2: (laughs) I think I've always said my path is a pretty winding one, and it could best be described as the next open door career plan. I like it. I did PhD work in history and did pre-doctoral work at the Center for Alcohol Studies at Rutgers. And that led to a deep involvement in the field of addiction treatment, clinician, administrator, program developer. And now when I completed my MBA, I was asked to lead new business and program development for a large multi-service organization. They had 10 nursing homes a variety of other kinds of services for older adults, including affordable housing, assisted living. But they also had the statewide adoption network mm-hmm. contract. They did right. foster care, behavioral health, refugee resettlement, disaster response, had a wilderness school for adjudicated wow. youth. It was a very multi-service, spectrum. multi-service organization. And that really introduced me to health care beyond addiction treatment and certainly to a really wide range of of the ways in which we can provide supports and services to people in a variety of settings and situations. And then from there, I, because managed care was sort of coming through its first wave in aging services, I put together a managed care contracting alliance. And from there was, became the CEO of Lutheran services in America, which is the $21 billion network of Lutheran health Mm -hmm. and human service organizations across the country. And after traveling kind of nonstop for 12 years. I decided that the idea of being part of Leading Age Maryland, starting up Leading Age Maryland with a uh, a traveling radius, basically, that usually meant I could be home at night was very attractive. And so that's kind of what brought me here. Again, next open door.
1: That's pretty fantastic. What motivates you in the morning?
2: Well, I'll tell you, first of all, I guess I'm lucky I'm a morning person, so mm. that, that helps. I could jump out of bed pretty easily, but I think it's been, you know, what a blessing to have work that I've loved, at least most days. You know, we all have those days and tasks that are less fun, but, you know, I, I really love the work, and I've always had great colleagues, and I think that makes things more interesting as well. Pretty pretty lucky, I think. Gets me out of motivated in the morning. Is great work to do and great people to do it with.
1: Outstanding. Well, friends, you are listening to the HFAM podcast, Quality Care Talks. I'm Joe D'Amatos, and we are here today with Jill Schumann from Leading Age Maryland. We'll take a break here.
0: Join us for a training and leadership event on behavioral health trauma-informed care on April 4th in Easton, Maryland, or on April 5th in Linthicum, Maryland. Presented by CMS-certified experts from Assurance Learning and Performance Solutions, this powerful training provides six continuing education credits and offers valuable information, tools, and resources to improve delivery of behavioral health and trauma informed care. Topics include FTAG examination, disease and non disease states associated with behavioral health, PASSAR updates, and best practices for trauma informed care. This program is valuable for providers across all care settings. Plus, Jill Schumann, President and CEO of Leading Age Maryland, will present keynote remarks. To learn more or register, please visit www.hfam.org or call 410 290 5132. See you in April.
1: Friends, welcome back. Joe D'Amato's here, the President and CEO of the Health Facilities Association of Maryland. Welcome again to the HFAM podcast quality care talks. I'm here with Jill Schumann, my colleague at Leading Age Maryland and really enjoying the conversation. So let me ask you, Jill, what do you consider your personal mission?
2: Well, it's interesting. You had kind of given me this question in advance and it took me a minute to try to see what those threads were. And actually there is one, which was kind of interesting to note. Glad to help. (laughs) I appreciate that. I think all my work has been to try to remove the barriers that keep people from putting their unique gifts and talents in the world. I think there are lots of barriers like that. Certainly addiction was, ageism, racism, poor health, trauma, lack of access to resources, structural and systemic barriers. I mean, there's all kinds of things that prevent people from being able to have their gifts and talents used well in this world. And frankly, I think our world needs everyone's right. gifts and skills. So kind of committed to trying to remove the barriers that prevent that. I guess helping people put their gifts in the world is my mission. That's a big deal. It's, I don't know. It was very helpful to see that as a threat, certainly.
1: Well, you know, we're at this incredible time in the evolution of health care to well care, to that balance between being able to be um, an outstanding provider of health in one setting. And that'll no longer be the case going forward. You know, we will, we must move from sort of being a, an Island unto oneself to sort of a set of islands and recognize the whole healthcare continuum. Funding is a challenge, new rules are a challenge. So I guess as we find ourselves at this unique place, also, by the way, <laughs> as America sort of accelerates the aging of our population, which, by the way, I'm bullish about. I personally see so much upside to an aging America. But don't let me pollute the well, you know, for you. So are you bearish or bullish on the future of senior living and healthcare?
2: Well, as you said, the demographics are certainly on our side, right? I think most of us will need supports and services as we age. And I don't think very many of us will escape the need for health care. Yeah. So I'd say I'm bullish on the ongoing need, but I think we have to do a lot of reinvention to your earlier point. I think we'll need to be less paternalistic and ageist. We'll have to be less institution focused. We'll have to be less siloed. I think we probably need to stop chasing the latest shiny thing, whatever that may be. And I think certainly we are at this point overbound by layers of regulation that really stifle innovation and stifle the ability to put the person in the center of things. So I think that means we'll need to be more creative and innovative, more proactive, probably more cost-effective and aligned, more collaborative, more technologically oriented. And I think thinking in new ways about what it means to be well as opposed to just ill and how we can be instruments of that at the same time, knowing that people will need supports and services and they will need healthcare, And we need to be about doing that the best way we can. We need to be evidence-based, and outcomes-driven, and all those kinds of good things. But we need to be doing that in partnership.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's going to be need for, again, the entire continuum. You know, there are different moments in people's lives, whether it is for a long period or for a short period where they're going to need a physical place to be cared for. And there are times in people's lives going forward that increasingly that physical space will be in community or at home. And the idea is, you know, I'm tired of this sort of argument, this either or argument that it's home or community base or center base. The reality is we need all of it as we move forward.
2: Totally agree. And I think we think we should think less about continuum. Right. Because these are not one way streets. Often, I think, as people experience their own (laughs) situations, that things are episodic and they're episodic with different needs. And there are chapters and there are micro chapters. And I think being able to think about how do we flexibly surround a person with what they need in ways that are less disruptive for the person and their families and right now, I think it, it's pretty tough to navigate all of this. I mean, you, you know, I think about how many calls I get, and I'm guessing you do too, of families in the community who say, "I don't know what to do."
1: I literally have two today, to two do. today, like literally today, two two calls from folks saying, and I'm glad to be there for them. But you know, that's sort of amazing. So listen, let's talk about you a little bit again, just a bit, okay. no frowning. What are some of the, have governing values played an important part in your life? And what are some of those governing values?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, I think, I think I was pretty lucky to grow up in a household where there were pretty clear values transmitted. Honesty was huge. Trust, respect, curiosity, kindness, generosity. So I actually was very lucky. And I think those have continued to be important to anchors. I mean, I would say I'm probably as competitive and aggressive as anyone, but not at any price. Right. There are prices I'm not willing to pay.
1: They're right. There are lines that you just won't cross. And that in your career, has that served you in your experience well? Has it worked oh, out? Absolutely. Right. I'm,
2: I've never, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, and I've, I'm not a young, or as my next door neighbor, when she first met me, said you are no spring chicken. <laughs> um, so I've had lots of experiences, and I've been in cutthroat environments. Right, but I think for me, it has always served well. You know, I'd rather trust until somebody teaches me not to. Right, I would rather. I mean, I'm not a naive person, but I think I'd rather extend the benefit of the doubt. You know, that kind of I would rather trust someone and. Behave well, then be defensive and guarded.
1: Yeah, I think you get so much more out of life that way. And again, me, net, over the course of my career, it's, you know, you get burnt once or twice. But over time, you gain a lot more by trusting people. Absolutely. Than, than, and, you than, know, and,
2: and you do get burnt occasionally. But yeah. so then you know. <laughs> then you, learn from it. you avoid that person.
1: Right, you just avoid that. And so let me ask you, what do you consider urgent, both in your personal and your professional
2: life? Urgent. Oh, that's an interesting word. Hmm. I would say urgent, keeping my commitments, Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, be as good as my word, tending relationships best I can. And I guess urgent for me at this stage of the game, professionally, is trying to be a good steward of leading age in Maryland. You know, it's a young organization. and, And I think the notion of stewardship, figuring out how do we move this into the future well in ways that make a difference for our members, but also for the wider Maryland community.
1: Yeah, I think stewardship is something that resonates with me as well. And, you know, HFAM has been around, this is our 71st year. (laughs) and I've been there a decade. And yeah, you know, I I do, I think actively about stewardship. And and not only, because we spend so much time helping to navigate for our members and the people that they serve, that we really have to be also intentional about our stewardship of, evolving the organization, Mm -hmm. right? And not be, you know, the shoemaker who doesn't pay attention to his or her shoes or the shoes of their kids, right? right? Really, really important. So let me ask you a question, really the last question. Tell me about an important mentor in your life and who are the leaders that inspire you and why?
2: I've been lucky to have many mentors. Actually, that's something that's been an important shaper for me. I like learning from people, especially people that I respect and watching how they do things and then incorporating a little bit of that into me where it's appropriate obviously but like my career path i suspect my way of being mentored has been to learn from lots and lots of different people kind of a composite some examples so many years ago i i didn't grow up in a family that did much entertaining or you know did not have kind of a highly polished way of doing Entertaining. And I had a colleague who was just amazing at it. She made hospitality look simple. And so I said, could I apprentice to you? Could I kind of be your helper and kind of work with you through a whole preparation and serving of a meal to guests? And she loved having the, the somebody along and I learned a lot. I think about a high-powered exec that I work for, a woman exec, who taught me that sometimes. You really have to take a stand, be aggressive, and fall on your sword if you have to. I think about one guy who taught me the value of being prepared. So this was somebody that other people were sort of, I don't know, they found him aggressive. What I observed was that part of why his way was the way that got adopted was because he came to board meetings prepared and nobody else had read this stuff. You know so thinking about leadership and you know and the way that simply being something as simple as prepared made a difference. I think about another person who gave me who really taught me the categorical importance of the bottom line absolutely. You know, who said who said you know you may get accolades for lots of kinds of things you'll get fired related to the bottom line. And that that's been good solid advice. One mentor told me that boards of directors have no memory and that's been absolutely true these people go away from your board meeting and they are doing something else the rest of the time and they come back to the board. It's really important not to assume that they will remember from the last meeting what's going on. So prepare the materials to catch people up. Mm -hmm. And I think about, for example, I was on President Obama's Council, White House Council for Community Solutions, which was a wonderful experience. Fascinating collection of people, including John Bon Jovi. But the person who was chairing it was Patty Stonecipher. Mm -hmm. And she had been the head of the Gates Foundation and then the head of the Smithsonian Board of Regents. And one of the things that was fascinating was watching the way that she was very down to earth and approachable. And had an absolutely exquisite way Mm. of making sure everyone felt heard and valued by keeping meetings on track and absolutely productive. I mean, I could just go on and on of the really the wonderful ways that I've learned from other people. And I guess you ask me, who do I respect as a leader? I think I would say I respect leaders that who have humility and who know that they need to wield power carefully. But on the other hand, open to the views of other people, but they're not afraid to take responsibility and be decisive. You know, I think that mix of allowing input in and being curious, and then being willing to stand up and say, "This is what we need to do. This is what we're going to
1: do." And we're going to do it. Yeah. No, I think I think that's what a beautiful picture you paint. I really appreciate it. Well, Jill, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today on the HFAM podcast, Quality Care Talks. How can people get in touch with you
2: we have a website leadingagemaryland.org and my email address is very simple jschumann at leadingagemaryland.org and i would be glad to talk with anybody and certainly talk more about trauma-informed care
1: thank you my friend really appreciate it
0: thank you for joining us on quality care talks we would love your feedback on today's episode please be sure to rate us on itunes Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest nationally affiliated association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers. For more information, visit www.hfam.org.